Welcome to another episode of the weekly podcast, Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. In this episode, we're going to talk with one of the country's leading and most prominent psychiatrists and hypnosis experts, and I welcome him, Dr. David Spiegel. He's Wilson Professor and Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and Director of the Center on Stress and Health and Medical Director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. He's been there as a member of the academic faculty since 1975, and he was also chair of the Stanford University Faculty Senate from 2010 to 2011. Dr. Spiegel has more than 40 years of clinical and research experience studying psycho-oncology, stress and health, pain control, psychoneuroendocrinology, sleep, hypnosis, and conducting randomized clinical trials involving psychotherapy for cancer patients. He's published 13 books, 404 scientific articles uh, in journals, 170 book chapters on hypnosis, psychosocial oncology, stress physiology, trauma, and psychotherapy, and is co-founder of and scientific officer of uh, Reverie, which is a self-hypnosis app. And I should also mention that there was a Dr. David Spiegel, also a psychiatrist, who testified on behalf of Amber Heard in the widely publicized lawsuit involving Heard and her ex, Johnny Depp. That is not this David Spiegel, though the two are conflated in Wikipedia, as I am with the Michael Krasny, who is the billionaire founder of CDW Computers. And I always tell my wife, you married the wrong Michael Krasny. Welcome, David Spiegel. Thank you, Michael. I'm happy to be here with you. Glad to have you here. I want to begin on with kind of a somber note. Um something that's very much in the news and I think on many people's minds, and that is the shootings, uh, the killings, really, the slaughters. Um, they're, very mu they're very much a part of us now, almost on a, what seems like a daily basis, yes. whether it's a bank, a school, a, ma a mall. Um, and what I'm concerned about finding out from you is a lot of it has been attributed to mental illness. Obviously, a lot of it is gun excess. A lot of it is maybe the culture. Um, but what's always mystified me is where does mental health fit into this? Because this seems to be largely an American phenomenon. Uh, it's not happening up in Canada. It's not happening down in Mexico or in Europe, for that matter. And uh, I mean, certainly there are ins isolated incidents of these kinds of things, but not with the kind of uh, frequency that it's happening here. Where does mental health come into the picture from your perspective? Well, you know, there's a saying that a Canadian is an American without a gun and with health insurance. And... Um, Part of it, you, in a way, the way you've posed the question, as you usually pose questions very well, provides the answer. And that is, there's a lot of mental illness around the world. The rates of mental illness are not that different. About uh, one-fifth of Americans have an anxiety disorder. About 1% have schizophrenia. 3 to 6% have major depression. So mental illness is common. But those numbers are not so different around the world. But the death rates from gun violence are very different. America has more than one firearm for every person in the country. And that means that when things go south or people get angry or, or feel alienated or isolated or demeaned, it's too easy for them to gain access to automatic weapons, to rapid fire pistols, to guns that can kill a whole lot of people in a very short time. And it also increases the rate of suicide. So it's not a mental illness problem. It's an availability of lethal firearms that's the problem how much does the culture contribute though you know it was all talk about toxic masculinity and the sort of things that i mean there's a lot of machismo in different parts of the world that sort of eclipse our notions of machismo but uh, this toxic masculinity keeps coming up even though i saw a statistic recently that there are more guns used by women when guns are in homes uh that, with that, suicides, for so it's not it's not that more guns are used. The, there's been a, a recent study uh, published in part out of out of Stanford, David Studdard and his group, uh, that showed that if there is a firearm in the house, and this was a study of 17 million households in California, women are 35 times more likely to kill themselves with a firearm. Yeah, uh, men, it's like seven times more likely, and even. For homicide, if you have a gun, you think you're going to protect yourself or your family, you're twice as likely to die from your own firearm in your home as you are to protect yourself in any way. So uh, firearms are dangerous. They're toxic. Um, people who use them responsibly need to be trained. But even with that, 
there are so many occasions when a gun is around and you know you you pull out the gun because you heard a noise at night you you know you leave it on the night table and your four-year-old grabs it and kills himself or kills someone with it it's uh, it, it's a dangerous responsibility it's it, it we think it's there to protect us but the fact is that they endanger us i know as uh the title of this uh particular podcast reveals we look at things often through the gray and through uh different sides and right so there, there, there's certainly an argument to be made for people who are responsible citizens who want to protect themselves or protect their family having guns uh rather than get in the whole gun control debate though i'm just what worries me what is one of the things that maybe keeps me up at night is what's in the culture that leads to this kind of as you say, somebody's depressed or and they have a gun handy and they go out and use it. And why here so much more than anywhere else? Just because there are more guns around. And guns are an extremely effective, lethal way of killing yourself or somebody else. You know, people take drug overdoses. Sometimes you kill yourself with the drugs. Sometimes you don't. Opioids are exceptionally lethal. And we've had half a million overdose, drug overdose deaths in the U.S. in the last 10 years, more than firearm deaths more than automobile accident deaths. Um, it's, it's that they're rapid and they're lethal. You know, a lot of people try to think about suicide. If, you're more, if you think about it, you're more likely to do it than if you never thought about it. If you try, you're more likely than if you just thought about it. Um, but the problem with guns is that they're dangerously effective. So you can kill yourself in a hurry before you have time to think it over and reflect on what the immediate problem was that led you to want to kill yourself. So it's just that there's too many of them and they're too dangerous. And people, as you suggest, are also killing themselves with drugs even to a greater extent. Um, yes. And what about that? I mean, you know, you've been dealing through the years with psychiatric uh, problems and a lot of them are related to, a lot of the opioid problems are related to physical problems. They take the opioids to yeah. ameliorate the pain and uh, yeah. then it becomes an addiction. But now there's there's an ongoing battle about whether people should be put in mandatory uh, to save their lives, whether the government should step in in that way. Your thoughts? Well, you know, I mean, America has been a country that has valued and named liberty above all other things. Freedom, you know, that's our thing. You know, in France, the motto is liberté, égalité, fraternité. Here, it's just, you know, be free. Don't have anyone tell you what to do. And the problem is that that kind of freedom leaves you unprotected against other people's exercise of freedom that may impinge on yours. And so I think uh, it, 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 the American situation is such that we want to be able to do anything we want, anytime we want, anywhere we want, any way we want. And um, th that has its dangers associated with it. But the problem is not a mental illness problem. Uh, I can remember when I was a resident at Mass Mental Health Center in Boston and there was a, a patient escaped from Boston State Hospital and raped somebody in the community. And there was an understandable uproar about, about that. But the head of the hospital said, I hate to tell you folks this, but the community is out raping us three to one. It's much more likely that psychiatric people with psychiatric illnesses are the victims of violence than that they are the perpetrators. Someone and, yeah. with schizophrenia is no more likely to harm anyone else than anybody else in this culture. This is a baleful thing in many ways. I mean, making it seem like mental health leads to going out and harming people or yeah. shooting people. And especially, I mean, from your experience with schizophrenia, it's much more the exception, isn't it? It's much more the exception. They, you know, they may have angry thoughts or delusions or fantasies, uh, but it is very rare that uh, they act on them. Um, and so they're much more likely to suffer than to be the one that inflicts suffering. And, and it takes, you know, and if the, for the people that do these systematic mass killings, which is just horrifying, it takes intention and planning. You know, it's not that you're having a delusion that Martians are, you know, listening in on you through the sprinklers in the ceiling. Uh, it's, it's people who plan carefully, accumulate weapons, accumulate ammunition, and plan to kill people. That takes something that really severely mentally ill people can't do. In many cases, it's, uh, I'm going to take out as many as I can. It'll be a suicide. I'll get killed in the process. But right. why, I mean, what's going on mentally there? Do we have any idea in terms of, I mean, I know a lot of it has to do with suicide and depression and anxiety and purposelessness no, no. and all those kinds of things. But to decide, I'm going to go in and shoot children in a school classroom and so well, forth. I, I, I mean, I have trouble comprehending it, Michael, but 
it, it's not, um, it's not, it's not anxiety and depression so much. And the people who are depressed, if anything, kill themselves. It's relatively rare among suicides that it's, you know, suicide by cop. It's more often people just kill themselves. I think it's more people who are bitter and angry and have the, have a chip on their shoulder and a sense of injustice. And that's not a mental illness. It's a, it's a position that people take that allows them to misattribute their own suffering to somebody else and blame them, including strangers who, who they don't know and don't know them. So it's, it's not a psychiatric problem. It's a human and an ethical problem that some people deal with their own bitterness and unhappiness by taking it out on other people. But there are some who feel in your profession that the maelstrom of emotions or the desire to take out one's anger with others can somehow get under control, that there can be a dominion of will or there can be some intercession. That's what psychiatrists are supposed to help, isn't it? Uh, we're not really agents of control. We're, we're there to help Self -control. people sort out yeah. their... Uh, sort out their feelings and understand, take responsibility for what they ought to take responsibility for. And yes, not blame it on others. But um, I, I, I find it to be a kind of scapegoating of the mentally ill, sort of blaming the victims to claim that, that shooting people with firearms is a mental illness problem, a psychiatric problem. It's not. It's a human and ethical a moral problem uh, and and a problem that has to do with the availability of easy means to inflict terrible harm and and that's not psychiatric that's human that's cultural that's political that's legal but there is this notion somehow that and this gets right to the heart of the efficacy of psychotherapy <clears throat> that if somebody finds a good professional they can work through a lot of their anger or they can work through a lot of the issues that they have, even though they're extreme, even though they may be leading to malevolence that can't be bridled or controlled in any way. Well, but typically um, it's not so much anger. People who are angry, people who are self-absorbed, people who are narcissistic, people who are sociopathic are not good candidates for psychotherapy in part because they don't want it. They don't think they have a problem. They think you have a problem. And so um, they're not the kind of people who would, tend to seek or benefit from psychotherapy. Let me shift gears here. We're getting some questions in, and I want to go to those questions shortly. But I talk about you often as a pioneer in psychiatry because you did find ways of using what I suppose could be called the talking cure mm -hmm. to help people who had been through breast cancer for the most part. Yes. And these were like group therapy sessions. and That's right. Um, so there really is validity to how people can be helped with, and Freud is back in, according to the New York Times, back in vogue somehow. <laughs> so, there really is this notion that you can ameliorate or diminish problems through the talking cure. Uh, not necessarily, as you say, if they're too narcissistic or self-absorbed, but that still applies to most things, doesn't it? It's yeah. certain... There's tremendous power, Michael, in, in helping people to manage themselves and their lives better. You know, our major evolutionary advantage is this three-pound organ that sits on the top of our shoulders but it doesn't come with a user's manual. There are a lot of things our brains can do that we're not fully aware of. And the talking cure is part of it, teaching people how to manage their own mental states. We use techniques like hypnosis. We use group therapy for cancer patients. We, when I started that with uh, my colleague and mentor, Irv Yalom, who's 91 now and, and still going strong, um, we were told that putting eight women or 10 women with metastatic breast cancer in a room together would demoralize them. It'd be a terrible thing to do because they'd see one another die. You know, at that time, the median survival for breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer was two years. And yes, people would die. And it was turned out to be a very difficult but meaningful part of their existence. And one of the women who, who they learned to help one another, they could see in other people with a similar problem, things they couldn't see in themselves. One woman said that being in the group is like looking into the Grand Canyon when you're afraid of heights. You know, if you fell down, it would be a disaster, but you feel better about yourself because you're able to look. I can't say I feel serene, but I can look at it. So they felt stronger in facing what came uh, next. Uh, and it turned out in our original study that the women who were randomly assigned to this group therapy not only had half the anxiety by the end of the year, half the pain that the control group did on the same and very low amounts of medication, they lived 18 months longer. You know, it didn't cure them of breast cancer, but they did better with it. 
And um, we've done a meta-analysis of all the studies that have followed that one, and there's a significant survival advantage. Married cancer patients live four months longer on average than unmarried cancer patients. So having a supportive spouse, having any kind of spouse, uh, particularly by the way for men, women being married to a woman is good for your health regardless of your own gender. For women, marriage is sort of more of a mixture of stress and support. But social contact, we're social creatures, and the kinds of things you were talking about, about helping you to get perspective on yourself, to face the problems you have, to have someone to share them with, uh, is good for your mental and your physical health. And what about hypnosis? I mean, that can do a lot of good too. I mean, you've got an app now that's helping a lot of people break yes. smoking habits and all right. kinds of things. Uh, I was even reading about your app uh, and... Uh, just a whole catalog, a whole laundry list of things that can yes. be done. Um, but when it comes to, let's say, overcoming grief or overcoming anger and those kinds of things, hypnosis is pretty ephemeral, isn't it? Well, no. I, we used it in those support groups, Michael. We would do a self-hypnosis exercise at the end of each group, have people first get their bodies comfortable. Imagine you're floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or just floating in space, and let your body affiliate with that sense of comfort. So rather than dealing with the problem out there, deal with the one you can control within your own body. And then if we had, if we had lost someone in the group, we'd do an exercise where I'd have the women picture a split screen in their mind's eye, and on the left side, picture the woman that we've lost, and just sit with your feelings of grief about her. And then on the other side, picture something she, that remains with you, even though she's gone. Um, we, had, we had one woman who was uh, an elegant woman, matching accessories, hair always done well, even though she was clearly getting very, very ill and had lost weight. And uh, she came into the group one day and she said, you know, um, my husband's a banker, but he's not a teller. And I think he's had it and he'd be better off if I weren't around. And so she was talking about thinking about killing herself. And, you know, one of the rules in group therapy is talk about what's going on in the room. There's plenty going on. So instead of speculating about her husband and her relationship with him, we said, I think she's asking us a question. Would we be better off without her? And she got this very moving feedback from the group about how much they admired her, how they could see how she did the best to keep herself looking and feeling good despite how ill she was and the fact that she knew the disease was progressing. They said, we want you with us as long as possible. She didn't kill herself. About three months later, she died. And in her will, she had a provision that she sent a, a bus to come pick us all up from the group room to attend her memorial service. So you can face very difficult things and using a combination of psychotherapy, group support, and in that case, hypnosis as well, handle it a whole lot better. And anybody can self-hypnotize? Um, we, we know, Michael, that not everybody is hypnotizable. So the peak period for hypnotizability in the human lifespan is uh, like the ages six to nine in childhood. You know, every eight-year-old's in a trance all the time. You know, you call him in for dinner and he doesn't hear you. He's off doing what he's doing. But some of us lose that ability throughout adolescence when we develop what, what Piaget used to call formal operations. You value logic over experience. And by the time you're 21, how hypnotizable you are is the way you're going to be for the rest of your adult life. It's as stable as IQ over time. And so about two-thirds of the adult population is hypnotizable. About 15% are very hypnotizable. But most people can benefit from trying the hypnosis exercises and seeing. On the Reverie app, which you can download from the App Store if you have an Apple phone or from Google Play if you have an Android, there's, we have a hypnotizability test that's interactive, digital, and you'll get your score low, mid-range, or high in hypnotizability, and it will teach you how to use it. Uh, and we combine whatever ability you have to experience hypnosis, hypnotic induction, with strategies that we know help people in handling stress, get your body comfortable, and then think through the stress-related problem, getting to sleep, get your body comfortable and picture whatever it is that's preoccupying you on an imaginary movie screen. So you take it outside of your body and don't let it get you so aroused you can't get to sleep. We help people control pain. It's one hell of a lot safer than opioids and it's very effective. Well, you know, I tried self-hypnosis once. I think I may have told you about this. I felt like I was 
going into an alternate state of consciousness. It was a little, it was exciting in some ways, but a little scary. It almost felt psychedelic in a way. Is that yes. unusual or is that? Well, that's a good sign. That seems, seems you're very, you may well be very hypnotizable. You know, changing states of consciousness, you know, in Michael Pollan's terrific book, you know, How to Change Your Mind is a, a diary of what we're learning now about how just changing mental states, kind of getting over yourself, disconnecting from your usual way of experiencing things uh, can have tremendous therapeutic value. And in neuroimaging studies we've done, we found that when people go into hypnosis, particularly highly hypnotizable people, they turn down activity in the part of the brain that is your uh, salience network, your arousal system. So you don't get distracted by a, a noise or a thought or a preoccupation. Um, you disconnect from what we call the default mode. It's in the back of the brain, the posterior cingulate cortex. And it's the part of the brain that sort of stores your customary ways of thinking about yourself and how, how other people think about you. So you can cut loose from your usual presumptions and cut down your salience network that would keep you from perhaps taking on something that may be a little frightening or threatening. And it's a great context to change the way you think and feel about something. And so I think that's part of how psychedelics work. They also help people get over themselves. Their sort of self just kind of dissolves. It's Do you think they're good for uh, dealing psychiatrically? Uh, I mean, they're talking about MDMA and yeah. ecstasy and things of that sort. Yeah, I've, I've reviewed the literature on that. And um, yes, the answer is yes. Pollen seems to feel this. Well, and, but he's, you know, there have been studies at Johns Hopkins and at NYU, and we're, we're doing some at Stanford and UCSF. There's a center there. And what we're finding, for example, is that dying cancer patients, you would, I would have thought, you know, that the last thing I'd want when I'm have advanced cancer is to have a bad trip and be thinking about death. And what they say is, you know, I we come out of it experiencing it as one of the most important experiences in their lives. That they can see that death would be absolute but that the capacity to experience anything is a kind of a miracle and they feel grateful for what they have. And so it's been surprisingly effective. MDMA, the, you know, ecstasy, the sort of, you know, interpersonal connection drug seems to be very helpful with PTSD. Um, many, also greater intimacy, it enhances it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it seems to enhance intimacy and people who have PTSD often feel shamed by the trauma they went through. They blame themselves for events they didn't control. And so having an experience with a drug that makes them sort of feel reconnected with other people seems to be very therapeutic. So psilocybin, MDMA, some of the other psychedelics seem to have real potential. And the interesting thing is, unlike most traditional psychiatric drugs, uh, where you have to keep occupying the receptor to change the level of serotonin, this seems to reset the brain. And there's a paper in Science about a month ago showing that it's an intracellular change uh, that the psychedelics seem to form that causes neurons to change their connections. Can you do that with eye blinking, as some seem to believe? <laughs> I don't know if you can do it with eye blinking, but uh, we, we do eye rolling when we get people hypnotized. You look up and close your eyes. Well, let me go to some questions, uh, and thank you for the questions that are coming in ahead of time. David in Seattle wants to know, what is your opinion on neurofeedback in treating depression? Um. <clears throat> There can be a place for it. I'd say the most exciting thing from that point of view has been transcranial magnetic stimulation now. Uh, we Which have, is what? Uh, <laughs> what it is is um, you, you take something that is a, a pulsed magnet and you put it on specific parts of the skull. And, you know, we, we, you may know from high school physics that when an electric current flows through a wire, there is a magnetic field that surrounds it, an electromagnetic field. Um, and conversely, what you do with transcranial magnetic stimulation is you take a strong magnetic field and that can change the flow of electrical current in specific parts of the brain. And uh, Nolan Williams, who's a, a brilliant young professor at Stanford and his team have been showing that you can get rapid uh, uh, reduction in depressive symptoms, reduction in suicidal ideation uh, from using this transcranial magnetic stimulation. And they have a new protocol now where you'd have seven treatments a day for a week. And I've seen people walking around saying, I now feel like my old self again. I, I, it's not a, that I feel better, that I don't feel high, I just feel like the way I used to be. Which is very encouraging. Yes, it is. Here's George from Denver who says, what do you think is the role of hypnosis in a court of law? Should testimony based on hypnosis be admissible? 
I've been involved in a lot of those situations uh, testifying about the idea of using hypnosis. Hypnosis can be helpful uh, in helping people, particularly who've been traumatized, to relive or remember aspects of a traumatic event that they may have dissociated and not been aware of. But it's not a truth serum. And so just as ordinary testimony can be influenced by distortion or deliberate desires to say things that aren't true, uh, that can happen with hypnosis too, it, but it can be useful. And the, the most famous example is the Chowchilla school bus kidnapping. You may remember that. Yeah. The school bus was hijacked and buried you know, in a quarry for several days until they, they finally found them. And the bus driver, um, under hypnosis but not before, remembered all the letters and numbers of the license plate of the car that overtook the bus. He got them in the wrong order, but he got them, and that led to the arresting conviction of the people who did it. So there are times when it can be helpful. Um, there's a lot of skepticism about it. There are people say, and, and part of it has to do with how you do it. That is, you know, um, there's plenty of evidence that you can influence people's memory. You know, if you have them uh, describe a driving accident and you say, did you see the stop sign? You're in essence instructing people there was a stop sign. Maybe it was a yield sign or it wasn't there at all. But if you're careful about not suggesting information, but simply setting the stage and letting people see what they can recall, it can be helpful. More questions. Susan from Raleigh, North Carolina says, can you explain the difference between hypnosis and meditation and can the end results be similar? Um, they both are very part of very helpful, longstanding traditions of helping people manage their feelings. Um, mindfulness meditation come, is an Eastern tradition out of the Buddhist heritage of um, trying to do three things. You can sort of scan your body and f pay attention to and understand better what's happening in your body. What's called open presence, which is very valuable, that you you don't judge things. You, it's like watching a storm go by and you don't fight your anxiety. You just see it for what it is and let it flow by. And cultivating compassion. Those are the three major elements. Many people find that helpful and calming and useful. Hypnosis is more Western. It's the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. The first time a talking interaction was thought to have therapeutic potential started about 250 years ago. Hypnosis is more Western in another way. It's, you know, with mindfulness, you're supposed to do it maybe a half an hour, twice a day for a long period of time. You're not, you're not, you're supposed to de-emphasize intentionality. You're not trying to solve a problem. You're trying to be different. Hypnosis is Western. You use it for a purpose. So we're not trying to get people to be hypnotized all the time. We're trying to get them to use it to control their pain, to control their anxiety, to focus their attention better, to get to sleep, to stop smoking. We can get one out of five people to stop smoking by teaching them self-hypnosis. Can you hypnotize, I'm thinking about Mandrake the Magician, you know, I used to read as a kid in the cartoons, uh, but there are people who believe you can hypnotize masses of people. I mean, demagogues seem to be quite able at doing that. I don't know if that's hypnosis or if that qualifies as being hypnosis, well, but you can get people under kind of a spell, you know, cults and so forth. Yeah, well, you know, 70% um, of Americans think Trump won the last election. I mean, you know, we are social creatures. We are susceptible uh, to mistaken beliefs. And um, so... Yes, and and you know, hypnosis doesn't only happen just when you you go see me or a colleague of mine and go to be hypnotized. If you have the ability, you know, people who are hypnotizable uh, get so caught up in movies that they forget they're watching a movie. They enter the imagined world. You have this narrowing of the focus of attention. You're less likely to judge and evaluate things until later. So that's a human part of the human condition. It's intensified uh, in hypnosis. And here's Chris from Tempe, Arizona. What are the roles of psychotherapy in supporting recovery from trauma? The, uh, that's very important. And in fact, uh, it's an area where, the, you know, there are a huge number of people, both from combat, from sexual assault, from other kinds of violence, who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And the major treatment is one or another kind of psychotherapy, either what's called prolonged exposure, where you have people experience aspects of the trauma in a controlled and supportive way where you try to put it into a different perspective. Um, and also uh, cognitive restructuring where you think about it from a different point of view. So to give you an example, I saw a woman recently who came from a country that is now famous for mistreating women. Turn, she was a healthcare professional here. She managed to escape from there. You're not uh, gonna name the country? I'm not gonna name, but you can guess. <laughs> it's a four letter okay. word. 
Um, and um, she said, you know, her, she was raped at the age of 12 by her landlord. Her parents were afraid to bring charges because they thought they'd be thrown out of the apartment. She said, as I grew up as a girl, I realized that my body was not my own. People felt free to comment and do anything they wanted. Um, and she was working here. She was doing okay, but was depressed. She retired early, was getting more and more depressed. And I got, she was very hypnotizable. So I said to her, you know, I want to talk with you about this rape when you were 12 years old. And she said, I want you to picture yourself as if you were your own mother and picture yourself as that 12 year old girl after she'd been assaulted. And she started to cry. And I said, is it her fault? And she said, of course not. She's a sweet little girl. And then she said, I'm stroking her hair. I'm stroking her hair. And I said, well, I want you to keep in mind what happened and the fact that you were not responsible because she was told, you know, she must have done something wrong as many rape victims are told. And she called me about a week later and she said, my psychiatrist wants to know what you did to me. She said, because I'm not depressed anymore and he can't understand it. And she said, my friends don't recognize me. And so people are sort of imprisoned by these imposed, you know, the problem with trauma is that you're made into an object, a thing. You've lost agency, you've lost control. And psychotherapy, including with hypnosis, can help people to regain that sense of agency by recognizing what you were not responsible for and what you are. There is, however, uh, maybe not as much as there used to be. I mean, there was a pattern of... Uh, you remember that whole period when a lot of young women thought that they were uh, induced into seduction by their fathers, and that was not the case uh, in so many instances. And there were, it was like, I mean, the, the mind can create all these things, like people being taken aboard spaceships and so forth and so on. I don't mean to to discount or to mm -hmm. in any way decrease from the reality of uh, sexual assault and all that sort of thing. But there was a period there when there was clearly a lot of this being used as an excuse for all kinds of depression behavior and so forth. Well, that was the claim, and I, I guess it must happen, although to be honest with you, I've never seen a case of that. Uh, and I've used hypnosis with about 7,000 people in my career. Um, there oh, there's are, even books by, you know, about women who came to the realization that they were persuaded in some way that their father had seduced them and then yeah. realize that that was not the case. There, there are some therapists who think that all psychopathology is due to sexual abuse, and that's clearly not true. Yeah. But, you know, the problem with that whole line of, uh, uh, of exploration of the skepticism about dissociative disorders, about sexual abuse, discounting women who have, in fact, been abused, um, you know, she really wanted it, you know, it wasn't an assault, is that it is as likely that someone would be suggested into imagining that she was sexually abused as that she could be suggested into imagining that she wasn't sexually abused when she was. If memory is malleable, it can be malleable in two ways. And so some of the cases where women claim, I claimed, I thought it happened, but it didn't, she, they're now seeing a different kind of therapist whose belief is that that doesn't happen and you're making it up. And that could be as likely the result of suggestion as the sexual assault in the first place. Though I think there were uh, a number of cases where it was pretty clear that nothing did happen. And as you say, it was a, it was a therapist or a professional who was maybe abusing what the ethos ought to be uh, for professionals, or seeing well, sexual assault under everything. Um, but it, it, no, it, that was the that was the claim. But that claim, in many cases, was not substantiated. And well, weren't so there, I don't buy for it. example, men and women who thought that they were taken aboard spaceships who were not? Well, you know, you'd have to see if they had a ticket. <laughs> I, there, you know, yes, there were there were some stories about you know abduction that probably happened when people were dreaming and they woke up in the middle of a dream and thought that was happening. But and they that's had trauma as rare. a result. Some of them really went through trauma. Some of them claimed that they did. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, sure, we have all kinds of fantasies that are not always true. But I would say, in general, stories like that. Um, have been used to discount the many people who really did suffer terrible trauma. God knows there's enough real trauma going on in the world we don't have to invent anymore. Yeah, it's like, again, saying mental illness is responsible for mass shootings. And, right, you know, which being, it is not. Uh, taken to the absurd extreme. Just wondering, though, when somebody does to go through trauma um, and then they're able to essentially get it under control, not have it, in other words, haunt them or not have it... 
essentially like some kind of uh, succubus take over their souls. Mm. Um, That's a good image. Well, there's also that that sense that many people have that um, this is responsible for all the bad things that have happened to me or all the bad decisions I made or all the choices. I mean, you can use it as an excuse or you can move on. Sometimes that's just a question of free will, isn't it? No. Well. Or is it always there? I guess that's really what I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah, it's always there. I mean, you can move on. And I know many people who've suffered terrible trauma who do move on and live very good, productive lives. But for many, for any sensible human, if you've gone through some horrible trauma where you were turned into an object, where you're beaten or raped or threatened, um, that's bound to affect your view of yourself. And and the, one of the biggest problems these people have to live with is, number one, the sort of constant re-intrusion. You know, I know people who were involved in mass shootings, uh, who survived, um, who, who just didn't want to leave their homes for years at a time, you know, who just couldn't bear the thought or a loud noise would come and they would think that they're being shot at all over again. That's now, you mentioned Chowchilla before. Most of those kids on the bus, a lot of them had that kind of trauma. They couldn't... Right. They were afraid right. the rest of They're their lives. Under, understandably, yeah. Yeah. you know, that just a car overtaking you could, you know, threaten or to, to end your life. So it's understandable that people would have these associations between the trauma and subsequent problems that happen in their lives. And they can be helped with it. People can live better with it. There's no question. But they need help doing it. And it's not, it's a kind of psychopathology that evolves from traumatic experience. Here's Colin. When should one turn to medications used to treat mental illness? Do we default to medications too easily or quickly? And how do you encourage patients to exhaust alternatives before medicating? Which alternatives should people try? Well, that's a great question. And I, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a physician. I use medications with my patient. But I also think that it is worth a try to help people um, use their brains to better manage their symptoms. And there are people with anxiety disorders, with panic disorder, who can learn to use techniques like self-hypnosis to better manage their anxiety before it starts to, to build up and get out of control. For pain control, you know, um, uh, I had a woman who, uh, a young woman with very bad back disease who was pregnant, and she was in her seventh month of pregnancy, and as the baby got bigger, her back pain got worse. They couldn't use medication because she was pregnant. Uh, they tried implanting a nerve stimulator. They did everything else. And I got her hypnotized and had her imagine doing what she does to relieve the pain. She'd take a warm bath. I said, okay, right now, look up, close your eyes. You're floating in a warm bath. Feel the warmth penetrating into your body and let it filter the hurt out of the pain. And her pain went from 7 out of 10 to 3 out of 10 in a couple of minutes. And she opened her eyes and she looked angry. And I said, what are you angry about? She said, why in the hell are you the last doctor I got sent to instead of the first? And so we often reach for meds when people don't even get a trial at better managing their symptoms, their anxiety, their pain, uh, their obsession with eating, other things, with techniques that are simple and don't have side effects. Well, as long as we're talking about meds, it seems like a lot of psychotropic drugs are perhaps prescribed a little too freely. And there are some people who find uh, that, especially I'm thinking about maybe some schizophrenia, we can talk about psychosis and what it is legally as right. opposed to psychiatry and what it calls psychosis. But there are people who seem to be, when they have a psychotropic drug, uh, under control in terms of bad impulses or suicide ideation, those kinds of things. <clears throat> but at the same time, they zombie out. I mean, you hear this all the time. I'm thinking about somebody like David Foster Wallace. He went off his meds and, you know, suicide. Um, and there's that very difficult area, gray area, between people who zone out and they don't have the vitality they had. I'm talking about largely psychotic kinds of out or behavior that really is extreme, but... Um, can't control their behavior, and they do control their behavior, but they lose something of their life force. Well, uh, there are different kinds of meds for different kinds of psychiatric problems. Um, yeah. Uh, if you're psychotic, um, the antipsychotics affect largely dopamine receptors in the brain, um, and they hopefully you can get people on a dose that will reduce the auditory hallucinations so that you don't have a voice in your ear saying you're a worthless piece of, you know what, go kill yourself. That will help people and prevent the possibility of suicide or reduce the risk. Some people get 
too get over over medicated they zone out too much and it takes whatever pleasure and zest there is in their life but people with schizophrenia don't have a lot of that anyway you know the term schizophrenia means a split between thought and affect that's what schizophrenia is and so you may have these horrible thoughts but they're kind of numb and dead deadened anyway without the medication and so if you can reduce the force of the hallucinations and delusions you you're more likely to help them than hurt them with depression, antidepressants can be very effective. They're not effective with everyone. But the danger with depression is that um, if you don't really get rid of the depression, the period when they're getting better becomes pretty dangerous because they may still have the negative thoughts about themselves and feel like everybody would be better off without them and all that, but they have more energy. And so the, there's a real risk as people are getting better from depression that you kind of let up your, uh, you know, your sort of care and observing how they are, and they're more likely to act rather than less until they really get over the depression. So is the key dosage? Is uh, that so dosage is part of it, but also good management when they're getting better, and dosage can be a part of it. Um, Anti-anxiety drugs tend to be overused. They're good in the short run, like, like opioids. For, you know, a few days of an opioid can reduce pain, but it increases the risk of addiction. And, and then that becomes very difficult to get rid of. And the same way with anti-anxiety drugs, you can get habituated to them in both cases because you get resensitized to the anxiety or the pain as you reduce the dose. So you get sort of trapped, where if you start to try to reduce it, you feel hyper-anxious or you feel that the pain is even worse. So these are drugs that are useful in the short run, but are a real problem in the long run. Here's Alton from New York. Do you have thoughts on the effectiveness of virtual versus in-person therapy sessions? Um, yes. Uh, thank you for this virtual question. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, and and the answer is I do. I you know because of the pandemic, uh, my, most of my practice now is virtual. I use you know Zoom or other uh, forms, and there are disadvantages, but you know there are advantages too. First of all, for the patient, um, you, you don't have to drive you know an hour or park you know, wait for an appointment. It doesn't kill half a day. It's an hour. Um, you get to see where they live and what their living environment is like and watch their cat jump onto the table, you know, in front of them. Um, or you can talk easily with family members who are supportive. So I found actually that, and we've also getting results from, from the app where you get to hear my mellifluous voice, but I don't see you. And in some ways, it's better than, than what I do in person. When I help people learn how to get to sleep with hypnosis, that's fine. But when they wake up at three in the morning, I'm not there to help them deal with it then, whereas the app is. So I think we're learning that there are components of psychotherapy that can be done very effectively remotely. I ask you about trigger warnings because very much of the news now when we're doing this interview, mm -hmm. Cornell, the president decided, you know, mm -hmm. you have to have free speech. You have to have things going on in the classroom where they learn about things that are perhaps unpleasant. But then the student assembly said trigger warnings are real. They bring up trauma and we have to at least warn people when we're going to be talking about things like rape or whatever. Uh, I have to say, I, I agree with the president of Cornell on that one. I I think that we're in some ways infantilizing college students. If we, you know, if, if you're going to go out in the world and live like an adult and take on problems, it, yes, I, I understand, particularly if you've had some trauma experience yourself, that discussion of it uh, would be, um, you know, could be upsetting. So get help if you need help dealing with it. But, um, you know, we can't, we can't sort of uh, have everything that comes to us wrapped up in a box and you're warned what's inside before you take off the wrapping. We had a problem like that with the Chanel Miller uh, sexual assault at Stanford, uh, where part of the deal that was arranged with her, you know, this was a woman who passed out after a, a party at a Stanford fraternity and um, was found being sexually assaulted by a Stanford student unconscious by two cyclists who heroically caught the guy, held him down and got help for her. And she wrote a book called Know My Name about it that was a beautifully written book. And there was an agreement that the spot where this happened would ha be a little memorial to, to what had happened. And she wrote a beautiful few lines saying that basically you took away my freedom, my self-respect, my dignity um, until now. And this, she said this when she was in court and the guy was going to jail. 
And I thought, you know, there was concern about that trigger issue. And what I say is- There's well, also concern that he didn't get enough of a sentence. And there, there the was judge indeed. got him actually recalled because of it. Judge yeah. lost his job. That's right. Um, but, you know, there was um, a unanimous vote of the student council and of the faculty senate saying, put that thing there. And the university did. And I haven't heard of any reports of, you know, psychopathology emerging. If you, you don't have to go there, if you don't want to go there, if you do, you do. But I find it actually reassure, reasserting the dignity of women who have been sexually assaulted and of the capacity to transcend it, not by denying it, but by putting it into perspective and asserting your right as someone who has been victimized to bring charges against the person who did it. So I saw it as something that enhanced the campus life, not interfered with it. And as I mentioned earlier, Michael, much of the psychotherapy of PTSD involves readdressing the trauma. Uh, it's by doing it in a respectful, controlled way. So you're not assaulted by the trauma. It's not like somebody jumping you, but you're addressing it and putting coming to terms with it. Because if you keep it repressed, um, it's going to be different kind of trouble that you did not anticipate. Exactly, because then it, it you know it jumps you when you're not expecting it. Yeah. You know, here's one from Mexico City who wants to know: Is there a point in which you see any of these basic tricks? I'm not sure what he means by that. Maybe hypnosis are more widely available to the public in general to improve the quality of their lives. Um, well, it, they're not tricks. They're they're methods. They're things that we've studied and learned about and know work to help people better manage their own emotional responses. And I think he's asking about scale though. I mean, you know. Can you scale it? Yes, I think you can. We do. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are millions of people that, that uh, use Headspace and Calm to, to do meditation. Um, and we have more than 300,000 people who have signed on to Reverie. Um, and the vast majority find them helpful. And I have to tell you, Michael, that, you know, if I tried this 40 years ago, you know, I would have gotten in trouble with the hypnosis societies for hypnotizing people, you know, you know, public. Having them hypnotize themselves? Yeah, having them hypnotize themselves. You know, hip, really, I don't hypnotize people. I show them how to use their own hypnotic ability. And um, we've had virtually no problems from people. And I, they come to my attention if there are any. So people are learning to use it as a skill because that's what it is. It's an ability that people have. And we're just teaching them how to better use it. Can you use self-hypnosis to avoid thinking about a trauma, to actually intercede with, uh, so it doesn't come up and engulf you as often as the case? Well, people ask me, you know, can you make me forget that it happened, that kind of thing? And I say, no, I probably couldn't, but even if I could, I wouldn't do it because it's the wrong message. The message is that it's so horrible that you can't live with the knowledge that it happened. And I have infinite respect for people who live with things that I find inconceivably painful, you know, Holocaust survivors and, and, and rape victims and people who've been through fires and all kinds of terrible things. And if you tell them you can't live with this knowledge, then they're living a lie. And I would rather say it's a terrible thing. It's a painful thing. We can help you manage it better and not have it ruin your life. Marty from Silver Spring, Maryland. Thank you for this question, Marty. Uh, a good friend is recovering from incarceration. They exhibit depression with a lack of motivation. They are on meds, but not talk therapy. How does one go about finding a suitable therapist that would consider some of the therapies you describe? Um, well, uh, it's a big question. How, a, how do you a find a good question. therapist? How do you find a good it's like, how do you find a mate? Well, <laughs> Well, I'll tell you one thing that I think actually where the, you know, virtual psychotherapy is really very helpful and is changing the, the scene is that um, there are people that specialize in treatment for problems like that, for post-traumatic stress disorder, for, for people who have left prison and want to get back to their lives. But sometimes you don't have one nearby in your community. Um, now you have access to psychotherapists who may be in another part of the state. Now we have to, I have to treat people who are in California because my licensure is California. Uh, but there are, you know, a lot of people in California who can do it even. So I treat people who are in LA or in Northern California or somewhere else. And so it is possible now to find people who wouldn't have been practical, practical to see 
before we were doing a lot of this remote psychotherapy. And so that's a real advantage. There are various referral networks. You know, your, your doctor may know um, psychology today or the American Psychological Association can help. The American Psychiatric Association has lists of both remote treatments and remote, remote uh, apps that can help people as well. So there are more alternatives now for getting good psychotherapy made available than there used to be. A couple of questions I promised I'd ask, and we'll try to get another question or two in from our listeners. But uh, there is um, a, a, a sense, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe it, that uh, psychotherapy can be efficacious, that it can really help, that it can... But there's also, and this gets in the definition of what psychosis is, there's also break from reality, which I guess is a traditional way of at least defining what psychosis is. Mm-hmm. So many realities, though, um, multiple realities. And there's the old argument of uh, some rather renegade psychiatrist that, you know, what we call reality is conditioning to a kind of insanity. That's, uh, I'm thinking about, you know, some of the, uh, shall we say, more uh, radical psychiatrists back in the day, back in the psychedelic days. Yeah. That if you if you adjust to reality, you're adjusting to a kind of craziness that's in the institutions and that we have to live by. Well, look, uh, you remind me, Michael, of a wonderful movie called The King of Hearts. And I don't know if you remember. That, I do but, remember. And that that played at one movie theater in Cambridge as the only movie they played for like a year and a half or something like that. It's a good movie, and it's a good movie in which a bunch of inmates of a, of a mental hospital in World War One. Eventually get out because the the Germans are moving closer to this hospital in France, and uh, the hospital staff just ran away. And the so and the, the so the inmates get out. And the, so these were in the days when you'd be in a mental hospital for years and never get out. And they saw these soldiers approaching, killing one another, and they shook their heads and said, well, this, "This is worse than the life we were living back in the hospital." And they all marched back into the hospital. That was the, the theme end. of a lot. That was Cuckoo's yeah. Nest by Kesey. Yeah. It was R. D. Lang's work. Yeah. You know, there's so many of that. But look, there's a there's a lot of madness in the world. There's a lot of systematic madness. There's the you know the Russian invasion of Ukraine, my grandfather's home, and it's horrifying. It is just horrifying what people can do to one another. But there, there is a difference between evil, malicious, assaultive, criminal uh, mistreatment of other people and having an inner world where you can't distinguish fantasy from reality. And they're different things. Well said. Um, should let's, let's just talk for a minute about the Goldwater Rule because it still continues to hop around in my head. Uh, that's yeah. the idea that uh, shrinks... Psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, people in David's profession um, should not be making uh, analysis or uh, should certainly not be making uh, descriptions of diagnosis to someone without treating them and probably shouldn't even be doing it publicly. But that was done by some Yale psychiatrists with Donald Trump. They said he was a solipsist, narcissist, um, malignant solipsist. I think they created a new term of that sort. Where are you on that? Uh, well, I, the original thing was there were people, there were psychiatrists who gave an opinion that Barry Goldwater was mentally ill, right? You know, and he was he was saying, you know, f- what uh, f- liberty in the defense of freedom is no vice, you know, that do whatever the hell you want if uh, you think you're defending freedom, and they got their wrist slap, and the I think the American Psychiatric Association got sued, and they passed this Goldwater rule that you're not. Supposed they also to- said he was homosexual, by the way, which oh, at the time that. was you yeah, know with the homophobia. Yeah, was, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you, I don't like it. And what I especially dislike about it is anybody, you can put it into perspective. You know, you can say, look, I mean, I know more about certain prominent politicians and their background than I do about a lot of my patients. I mean, it's, it's around and it's out there. And you can say, I'm giving this opinion based on what I see and hear and know, but I haven't personally examined them. Um, I don't like the idea that the people who are the most trained, who know the most about psychopathology are silenced and are unable to comment on it. And if you look at what this country has been through with the previous presidency, you get an idea of how dangerous that is. If it's dangerous to slur Barry Goldwater, I think it's more dangerous not to point out to people what Donald Trump is really like. What are your politics again? um, (laughs) Another question. Middle of the road, Michael. (laughs) From Jake. With the rise of AI tools like ChatGPT, what do you think will be the impact of AI on therapy and mental health. 
Good question. Yeah, well, think, yeah, there've been a lot. There are, um, there are apps now like Wobot uh, that uses AI to generate chat-based responses to people who have mental illness. And they've done one or two studies that seem to show some improvement uh, in people who utilize it. Um, I, I think there's interesting potential. I'm not, uh, I'm not there yet about whether that would help. And that's why we chose to build Reverie not as an AI-based thing, except in analyzing people's answers to my question, is your hand floating in the air? Are you feeling warm and comfortable or not? And then we give them different instructions based on their response. So it's using AI just to analyze where the person is at, not to provide the intervention. Um, but, you know, there's a lot we don't know. And I think um, as AI develops, it'll be interesting to see. There's a lot of interest in virtual reality and augmented reality now. Uh, it seems to be helpful for people, for example, who have various kinds of phobias where you can, you know, part of dealing with phobias is, is systematic exposure where you have people confront the thing that makes them anxious and see whether it helps, whether you can sort of desensitize them to that. And hypnosis can be helpful. We're releasing fly, flying phobia treatment now uh, on, on Reverie very soon. Um, uh, and we think that, um, I think it's possible that with VR, for example, people can confront their fear of heights, but do it through a VR goggles rather than looking over the edge. Rather than having to go up in the high. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and that that may be a way of titrating the threat and helping people get to a point where they can accept it. So I think there's a lot of potential on this new technology, but you know, there are, there are risks like with any new technology. Well, the thing that struck me about self-hypnosis, which is what your app is all about, is that it seems to have some better statistics in terms of success than traditional psychotherapy. And by the way, there are people who say you can talk to a friend or a mentor and get as much as you can from a traditional psychotherapist. I don't know if we need to go there. But <laughs> you know what I'm getting at yeah. here is just behavioral stuff is not necessarily as successful as self-hypnosis. That's right. The nice thing about hypnosis is and it's in part because of this shift in mental state, because of the intensity of focus, you can find out within 10 or 15 minutes whether it's likely to help you or not. So it's very quick, and that's not, the, that's not true of a lot of other kinds of treatment. Now, it doesn't work with everything, but when it works, it works, and people can feel it right away. And so that's the cool thing about it, is try it, see if you like it, see if it helps you. If it does, good. If it doesn't, try something else. And the people who are reluctant to try Self-hypnosis, you would say what to? I would say, sorry, you're missing it. We, we, had, uh, we had one woman uh, from San Francisco who wasn't, really didn't want to stop smoking, but saw an ad that we had for a study we were doing about it. And, and she, she said, I can't believe it. My friends can't believe it. I lit up a cigarette that night and I went, who needs this? And she said, this is some crazy ass voodoo shit. And I mean that in a good way, she said. And she's getting her friends to stop smoking now. So people can surprise themselves. One final question um, came up in uh, actually uh, our team meeting. And that is between, uh, say, 5150 or actually outpatient care, um, is there any compromise, any way to go between those two polarities? Well, yeah. I mean, if in doubt, of course, we'd much rather treat people who are voluntarily there seeking to get help. And in general, those people will respond better. But there are people who, by reason of mental illness, are a danger to themselves, others, or gravely disabled. And we have a responsibility to keep them from hurting themselves or hurting someone else if we can. Um, so 5150s are never the preferred way of doing things, but sometimes they're the necessary ways of doing things. And we do it. So, you know, I've walked people over to the emergency room and they're alive today when they were thinking very seriously about killing themselves. And so no apologies for doing that, but it's a last resort. It's not a first resort. Uh, David Schiff uh, had an article. Uh, he's the author of Beautiful Boy, which was made in a movie. His son was an addict. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah. my son was definitely <clears throat> headed toward killing himself with drugs. He was even broken into his own home to steal from his family and so forth. And so we should have mandatory placement into drug rehabilitation? Well, look, you know, you want to prevent the harm and there are tragic situations like that. Uh, but at the same time, that's a, it should be a formula of last resort, not first resort. And, you know, you can, you can force people by locking them up, but even, but even we put people in jail, but drugs somehow find their way into jails. And there are people who get addicted to drugs while they're in prison. 
So uh, it, it, you know, the the drug addiction is a very serious problem, and what many people don't realize about it is that it's not the high itself; it's the the chase. It's the chase, not the catch. That people feel better when they're in the process of scoring a drug than they do when they actually take the drug. So it's a complex problem. There are effective ways of dealing with it, and uh, it should be taken very seriously. But we should also be aware that, like with guns, the the proliferation of substances that are seriously addictive is a problem too. It's not just controlling the person's behavior, it's controlling access to things that can kill them or someone else. Or maybe teach them how to do what David Pecker did, catch and release. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's good. And always on a note of levity, really good talking to you, David. Thank you so Pleasure. much for your time. and. Uh, Thanks to all of you who heard this episode live, and thanks to all of you who called in with questions and all of you who will be hearing the episode in the not-too-distant future. If you haven't already done so, be sure to take advantage of our invitation to join this growing community of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And to become a member, simply go to graymatter.show. My thanks to the Gray Matter excellent team we have, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Malachi, and a special thanks to our esteemed guest, Dr. David Spiegel. I'm Michael Krasny. My pleasure. Thanks. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.